Life is so much more than a diagnosis. It's about sharing time with those you love, hanging with friends who lift you up, and experiencing all those moments that bring you joy. All hits, no skips. Learn more about Cascali Ribocyclob 200 milligrams at KISQALI.com and talk to your doctor to see if Cascali is right for you. So long live singing to the oldies, jamming out to something new, and everything in between. So it's no secret that we are currently in a state of chaos in this world. We are watching humanity descend before our eyes. If you have been living under a rock, under a rock, right? Because you would, even if you were under the rock, you would still know what's going on. But you'd have to be like two rocks under to not know that there is a, an attempted genocide happening. I don't even say attempted. There is a genocide taking place in Palestine that we at present, we are watching it on this global scale in 2023. We're watching it with all the technology that we have, with all the advancements that we have made. It really reveals for us, though, that for all of these advancements, our humanity has seemed to regress. And in this, I am seeing a lot of people now coming to the table with curiosities that they didn't have before because this had been so sequestered to that part of the world. And so I wanted to replay Side Effects of Palestine, which is an episode I did with my sister, Netta. So I have two sisters and brothers that are my father's kids, and my father's uh, wife is from Palestine. So my brothers and sisters are Afro-Palestinian. And Netta has my similar spirit where... We're not here for play, okay? There is a revolution happening somewhere in the world at five o'clock. You know how they'll be like, it's five o'clock somewhere. There's a revolution somewhere and we're going to talk about it. But I wanted to talk to you all first because I think that there's something that's happening that has not happened in the past where a lot more people are feeling more brave about speaking up against the atrocities that have been happening in Israel, right? About uncovering the real facts and intricacies of what has really taken place in that part of the world. And in doing so, it creates this this reality that like once you know better, you do better. That's what's supposed to happen. And I wanted to re-release this episode because I'm really hoping that we can literally like level up the vibration of humanity by simply just knowing more and that invoking us to do more. And when I say do more, I'm not saying that y'all got to fly to Palestine. I'm not saying that if you don't have money that you got to donate. But what I am saying is that we have to be purveyors of the truth. We have to be protectors of the truth. Like we live here in a country in America, myself and my producer here, our team, where we are watching the truth continuously be erased on a daily basis for so many individuals that live in this nation. As a black person, I am watching curriculums decide that the history that oppressed my people is irrelevant, that it shouldn't be shared. As someone who has friends in the trans community and in the LGBTQIA plus community, we're watching their rights and just their access to human civility be completely dismantled day by day by lawmakers deciding that they don't matter. We're seeing our voting rights suppressed. We're seeing our access to education, to medical care. We're seeing all of these things shift before our eyes. And what it says is that we need to have a clear consciousness of what's really taking place in front of us. So a lot of folks don't realize that what happens over there still affects what happens over here. When we see America get behind what's going on in Israel and act as if a genocide is simply unavoidable, we have to ask ourselves, where's Deborah Cox? Even though she's Canadian, how did we get here? 
And so I wanted to play this episode again because Netta does a great job in my mind of breaking down the history of how Palestine became what it is, how the Palestine-Israel conflict has continued to happen, about, you know, the realities between what is taking place in Palestine, in the West Bank and in Gaza versus what is happening in terms of how life is lived in Israel. Really understanding the specificities around apartheid. I've seen messaging now that's saying that Palestine is not an apartheid state when it is absolutely 100% an apartheid state. Like even Nelson Mandela, who should know, was like, that's an apartheid state. So I'm hoping that you all enjoy this episode, but more importantly, I'm hoping that you're educated by this episode. And we did this episode back in 2021 after the attacks on the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. And that was the last time that like there was really a lot of like talk outside of the lines on Instagram around Palestine and Israel. And that's when I was told, like, you need to get informed about this because you need to speak on this. And I used to fall into the whole, it's just too complicated. It's just too complicated. And I realized when I started my studying that it's not, it's not complicated. It's not complicated, especially when we already know that this world is run by capitalist, colonialist imperialism. Especially when we already know that the media is run by white supremacy. Like, we already know these two things. And so when you have those lines to form the lens you're looking through, it gives you a leg up on being able to grasp what you're looking at without starting from scratch. Because none of this starts from scratch. It is supported by that which has taken place before it. And so I hope that you all pay attention. And I hope that we do our best to really try to demonstrate what humanity should be, which is simply just being humane. Let's get into it. Small doses. Self-help from the hip. Small doses. We're talking that shit. Small doses. And keeping it real. Small doses. With me and Nancy. It's so funky. So funky. <laughs> Oh, small doses, folks. How are we? Where are we? What are we doing? Well, if you've been uh, anywhere, basically, in kind of like the zeitgeist of things, whether it comes to current events or just on socials, I'm sure that you have been uh, hearing quite a bit about Palestine. And a lot of us have had kind of like a, even like a nebulous consciousness that there's some shit that be going on in Palestine and Israel, like over there. And I think a lot of us, um, it's it feels so over there that it just feels like, you know, it's not really our fight to fight. And we are fighting fights here in the States on a regular basis, particularly specifically as black folks when it comes to police brutality, the prison industrial complex, just actually walking and talking and being black without white people being like, stop doing that, um, et cetera. So, you know, for a lot of folks, and I will include myself, like it just felt like that was such a foreign conflict that seemed to be shrouded in so many layers that it seemed like it was just something that conceptually I couldn't wrap my head around. And for what it's worth, when things really started to blow up in recent uh, weeks, um, I was being very pressured by folks online to speak about it, knowing that I speak on a regular basis about injustices across the world. And so I kind of had to like immerse myself overnight into uh, the information of things because of of course, like, I don't like being pressured, but I also don't like not knowing things like there's a FOMO. So, <laughs> so I got to work and, and funnily enough, you know, 
the conf the the confusion factor feels like it's something that people have inserted to try and keep people away from really learning what's really going on in terms of the conflict between Palestine and Israel. And there's a lot of people who, when you speak about it, will say like, oh, you don't know the history. You don't know what you're talking about. Kind of as a way to like silence, you know, it's the Oprah question. Are you silent or are you being silenced? And I am somebody who knows that like information is confidence. So the more you know, the more founded you'll be in your conviction of your voice and what you're saying. And I always want to be able to help extend that to y'all. So a lot of y'all may not know, but I am my mother's only child, but I do have two sisters and two brothers by my father and their mother is a Palestinian descendant. Like she is of that, um, her parent, her grandparents and great grandparents refugees. And so we have a lineage on that side and, you know, they are my family. So that's connected to me. And my sister was like, you know, just by the way, just want to let you know, if you want to know anything about any of that over there, we got information over here. And, and, and thus brings us to today where we have my blood sister, Netta joining us. And, and I wanted to, and I told her this, and I wanted to share with you all this, you know, like for a lot of us, our entryway into this conflict was like by just kind of like reading articles. And, and I do believe that when it comes to research, you have to look at it from three sides. You got to get research from um, like unbiased sources, which can be very hard to find these days, but like historical sources, right? So like, you got to get like just basic, like non-biased just non-op-ed, non-editorial, just here, this happened at this time, and then this happened at this time, and then this happened at this time. And you also got to look at both sides of the conflict. So in a lot of conflicts, you know, even the folks who are the aggressors consider themselves the victims. And so sometimes it can be difficult to determine who is who, which is why you have to read both sides and explore both sides so that you as a person with a brain can determine, wait a minute, who is the aggressor here? Now, in this particular situation, I think a lot of us have been told that um, Palestine is the aggressor when really, if you just look at the basic facts, you know, Israel and the, and Trevor Noah did a great video on, on Daily Show of just kind of like a basic overview of this, which just shows that like, yeah, both sides are engaged in conflict, but one side is definitely sparking things and has been sparking things. The other side is retaliating. And one side has way exponentially more power than the other. And thus it's very clear like what the actual conflict is. But what happens a lot of times is that we're only getting information from like a very high up level. And thanks to social media, we're getting more conversations with people who are actually in the midst of this and people who are actually connected to this. And in the unique case of my sister, she's a bridge between being a black American woman and a Palestinian woman. And I wanted to bring her on to talk about this, not just from like, some historical information and providing some context in that way, but also just bridging the gap between how these two, this duality that she lives is actually very similar in terms of the conflict that we're dealing with in America versus what's going on in Palestine. And also just giving you guys an entryway into the conversation from a voice that's relatable and that you understand and um, that's on the ground versus like a professor coming on to be like, and here is the uh, understanding that I have gleaned from my several years of academic study, et cetera. So welcome Nana, to the show. Everybody. Thank you so much, Amanda, for having me on and, you know, like receiving my message with so much, you know, like love and openness. Like, you know, I was, what, what she said was absolutely true. I DM 
to Amanda. I was like, oh, Amanda, just so you know, we got four Palestinian siblings and a whole family. <laughs> so, um, and then, you know, that led to this and some great conversations in between. Um, so, yeah, I'm very happy to be here. Very happy to share, you know, whatever perspective I can, like as a lived person. So mm-hmm. my mom is 100% Palestinian. Um, and I am the granddaughter of refugee Palestinian refugees who fled Palestine during the Nakba in 1948. And can you please tell us what the Nakba is? Yes, I can. So the Nakba is known, um, it directly translates to English as the Great Catastrophe. So that is when 700,000 Palestinian people fled um, Palestine. You know, it was in many cases supposed to be a temporary thing. So in my family's case, they were, my great grandfather said, let's go for two weeks, leave uh, Yaffa. So we are from the region of Yaffa, which is known as the Pearl of the Sea. It is one of the most beautiful areas in Palestine. Like the aristocrats would live there. Like it's, you know, like the higher uh, people with low status. Like it's just a very, very beautiful, well-known area um, through history. It's an area that has great, um, how can I say it? It's in a great area for business. Okay. Um, yeah. So we have like the boats, the ports there. Um, mm-hmm. It's also strategically accessibility. Located. Yes, exactly. So it's always been like whenever you want to take over Palestine, you're like looking at that place. <laughs> but um, so we're from Yaffa, and Yaffa is now Tel Aviv. So as you see, as a it was targeted in this right. case as well. Um, and when you say that they left, what prompted them to leave? Like what prompted the Nakba? Okay, so I'm going to go through. I had some points that I just to organize like my family story. Um, So what happened first, um, I'm going to start on my grandmother's side. Uh, My great grandmother and uh, so my grandmother's parents were actually divorced. And my my grandmother lived with her father in Yaffa and her mom lived in Haifa with her family. So she got married. She was very, actually very young. She was 26. She got remarried um, and her and her husband were moving to Galgilia. So I hope I said that right, Galgilia. Um, and on their trip, they were traveling with a number of other Palestinian people. Israelis dressed as Arab women became part of the traveling group and shot and killed everybody who was traveling. And what year was this? Like what time frame? This was in 1947. So between 1947 and 1949, there was a war happening in Palestine. Um, And that that was was when the British had let go of rule of Palestine and were handing it over to the Israelis as forming of an Israeli state. Yeah. So one of the other things my grandmother had told me when she told me the story was it was illegal at that time for Palestinians to carry guns. Israelis were able to carry guns and they were provided them by the British military. So after my um, great grandparents, you know, my great grandmother and her new husband were murdered, um, they brought their bodies back to Haifa to be buried. So my my grandmother only met her stepfather once, like at that wedding, probably like does it. And she was like, he seemed like a nice guy, but like, I don't know him. She barely could remember his name. So within that year, then we're moving towards 1948. 
Mm-hmm. My grandmother explained that their house in Yaffa, where she lived with her father, it was a multi-generational house. So it was her father, grandparents, aunts, yeah. uncles, nieces, nephews, like all living in this house. And it was a little bit elevated. So you could see it from a distance and you could observe the house from a distance. Um, and what would happen is as family members would go to and from the house, Israelis would shoot at the house every time they would be walking to and from their house. What? Yes. So there's just, you know, an aggression. Aggression was um, increasing Mm -hmm. and it was increasing towards families. Uh, So specifically towards families, towards everybody, like towards everybody. You can do uh, you can do some research on what was happening at Yaffa at that time. Like I had read some a uh, few different stories. I'm just going to talk about my family story because I feel like that's what I can speak to the most. Yeah. Uh, and I have the blessing of my grandparents still being alive to share that. But yeah, there were it was it was becoming unlivable for people like right. you're just walking to your house and you're getting like shot at. And imagine you're like a person who has all this family or the head of the household. He said, we need to go. Uh, We need to go somewhere. Their plan was for them to leave for two weeks to travel somewhere. I don't know. I forget where they were traveling. I don't know. Actually, it was just kind of like until things cool down. Exactly. We're going to go for two weeks, pack two weeks of stuff, and we're going to come back. And this is not just what my family was doing. I had spoken to other relatives who are like a little bit more distantly uh, related to me. Mm-hmm. Same story with their great grandparents. Same story. Like everyone's just like, we're going to leave for a short amount of time. Some people went to Syria. Like some people were going like different places just for, for peace um, while things escalated. And then the plan was to come back. So they left um, and they, they took nothing of value with them. They, they left food in the fridge. Everything was in place to return. Um, and upon trying to come back, they were barred from re-entry. They were told you are not able to come back. They were never able to come back. So during the Nakba, 700,000 Palestinians left in a similar matter. So in my research, I was able to put together, like, there were uh, messages being told, like, everybody, you know, leave temporarily. This is the middle of war. Take your families. Come back a little bit later once things settle down. And things are escalating. So everybody left and no one was able to come back. Is it fair to say, though, that because Palestinians weren't allowed to have guns, it wasn't really so much of a war as much as it was an onslaught and a ambush because they weren't able to really defend themselves against the Israeli forces that had been furnished with guns and also had been furnished with kind of like this um, this emboldened right to the land by the colonizers of the Brits. Yeah, I would definitely say so. And I think like I, you know, I just I don't know, hearing the story, I think so like strongly of my great grandfather thinking of his family, especially Mm -hmm. after like, well, my daughter's mom was already murdered. Like, right. And her husband, like, I got to go like I can't, you know, I can't keep I can't put the rest of my family at risk. So they left and they were never able to come back. So uh, a lot of Palestinians have the keys for their houses and it's like a a family heirloom. That to this day, like people hold yes. on to it. So you see pictures. Um, yes. I asked my grandparents where ours was. And my grandma said, it's probably with some of the elders. I was like, Tessa, who's older than you? Like, yeah, I was like, they're the elders. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure which elder has it. Our family have gone to a couple different regions of the Middle East and now America as well. But um, a lot of families have it or the passports 
The Palestinian passports is another family heirloom that is very dearly regarded with families. It doesn't matter like what happens. They're like, I have the passport with the Palestinian stamp. That's something that means so much to us. My grandfather has his and my younger brother was able to look at it. And it's just like, it's a historical artifact that our family will always keep dear. So they left and they were not able to come back. So after that, they traveled to Gaza, which was kind of a checkpoint. You are not allowed to stay in Gaza, but you were just able to pass through. And Gaza was occupied by Egypt at this time, yeah? Uh, I'm not I'm not sure. Because I believe that at that time in the 40s, that Gaza was occupied by Egypt. And then I think it was in 67 when Israel fought. And I want to say, I'm, I might be confusing things. This might be the Six Days War. I can't remember. But I know that they fought and they got Gaza from Egypt and then they got the West Bank from Jordan. And so that then kind of furthered, because at one point, Jerusalem was still like supposed to be shared by both. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's important to add these facts in because a lot of the conversations that I feel like people are trying to have exclude facts. Like it's just about like we had this land 3000 years ago or you're being anti-Semitic. And it's like, well, no, because I'm not in any way attacking your religion and I'm not in any way attacking your right to live or your right to be free. I'm simply just saying that, like, if you have a right to be free and live, then the other people who are there should as well. Yeah. And so Gaza is not that Gaza is an open air prison, but continue. It is. Yes, it is now. Um, so my grandmother was saying that they traveled through Gaza. They then went directly to um, to Egypt for one of the first refugee camps that they stayed at. Um, and then let me transition to my grandfather real quick. And then the stories will come together. Okay. So my grandfather lived in Manshia, which is another region of Yaffa. Um, my grandfather, my grandma was the rich one. My grandfather was not as rich as my grandmother. They also, um, they say like he wasn't book smart, but he was very talented with his hands. Like he's like a craftsman. So, okay. um, so at the age of 12, my, some of the older relatives realized like, oh, this guy's not really doing that great in school. Let's, let's get him to work in the, in the mechanic shop. And he learned at the age of 12 in Palestine, like how to work on cars, which Mm. was actually how he ended up taking care of our family, even up to like the past 10 years. Mm. Um, So they uh, they also ended up leaving in 1948 during the Nakba, the same year as my grandmother. And he also with his family went to the same refugee camp in Egypt. In Egypt, my family said they got tired of being there real quick at that first refugee camp because the people were not allowed to work. They're just asking you to sit there, stay there. That's it. Mm. And after a while, you just, she was like, we got frustrated. And we just said like, we got to go. So my grandmother and her family, and my grandma is about like eight, nine years old at this time, decided to go to another area further into Egypt. My grandfather ran away from his family and followed them because he had his eye on my grandma. She's nine. <laughs> yeah, but back in the day. So we have to think about that. I know like <laughs> they, they actually like to lie about their age now because. <laughs> because they're like, oh man, it's like nowadays, like uh, <laughs> sketchy. <laughs> they have a beautiful marriage, like from day one. Like seriously, like when I when I before I got married, I was like, that's my goal for marriage because they're best right. friends. They always took care of each other. My grandma is the smart. She kicks my grandpa in the butt, and my grandpa is the heart. Like really. Um, so he chased after her family, and then his family ended up going to Lebanon, and they still live in Lebanon to this day. Um, her family went to Egypt and then it ended up, my great grandfather was, uh, when she turned, she went to school for a few years in Egypt. And then at 14, my great grandfather, her father started saying like, you know, I'm concerned if something happens to me, you already lost your mom. 
Like, who's going to take care of you if, if something happens to me? Uh, and this is his only daughter. So he said, would you consider marriage at this young age? And she said, you know, um, they brought my grandfather and she said, yes. And my grandfather always loved her. So he's like, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and this was not common because my grandmother actually said the neighbors and friends of the family would come and say like, oh, she's so young to get married. Like, but she was like, my father asked me, she loved her dad and she trusted. And, um, and so she, you know, they went along with it. And my grandfather was also like, uh, said to her, you know, you're too young to move out with this new husband of yours. So I need to be here to look over your marriage, make sure you're supported, taken care of, and you're still young. So you're going to stay living in my household with your new husband until you're a little bit older. So that was the conversation that happened. And that's, so she stayed with her dad for two years in Egypt with her husband. And then my grandfather ended up leaving my grandma and going to Kuwait to check it out. And in Kuwait, they found a lot of other people that were related to. So my last name, my, my mom's last name is Abul Jubin. So there was a lot of Abul Jubins living in Kuwait. So they were like, okay, like this is, this is awesome. And my grandma said, when she went over there, Kuwait was like empty. She was like, yo, it was all desert from one side of the Gulf to the other side of the Gulf. You could see like the ocean, like it was nothing. So now Kuwait is like very built up city. So that's how my family ended up transitioning to Kuwait. Um, and, and my grandma actually had the opportunity to go back to Palestine in 2003. Um, and this is very hard to go back. She said um, she got a little bit lucky because she's older and, you know, she didn't have social media or anything. So they gave her like the pass. Um, she also has an American passport at this point. Um, so she said in 2003, when she went back, she went to the old, the area that she used to live. And she went to the area my grandfather used to live and our houses are gone. Like our family houses are not there. Everything changed, the community changed. And actually, if you go to where Yaffa was, that part of Israel, mm -hmm. there's a park called Yaffa Slope Park. So when you go there and you think you're on vacation in this beautiful area, let me bring to light the amount of bloodshed that you are enjoying yourself on. Because our houses were destroyed and demolished. They put all of the rubble from the houses on the beach and it ended up creating such amounts. So in 2003, my grandma went and she said, yeah, like all the rubble from our old houses was there on the beaches. In 2010, they decided to build a park over it to cover up the rubble. And you can go on, you know, whatever travel websites, like I looked it up yesterday and it's just like, oh, it's such a beautiful park. I loved it. And there were so many signs with all the history of the area. I wonder if they say that, you know, this is the Abu Jubain home that is beneath these, uh, this park pathway, this bike path. Right. Like, I doubt that they say that. Um, and, you know, like our family too, like there's a lot of history in Yaffa for us. Like there was a whole street named Abu Jubain Street after our family. And all of the elders used to live on that street. So like generation above my grandparents, like they're buying houses and have families. They're living on that street. And now you're not going to find it. Like, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's very sad. It's very heartbreaking. My grandma did say she saw like one house that was very similar to hers. And, um, you know, it's like sad to hear like the amount of excitement she had of something that even like reminded her of right. her home. She was like, and you know how smell is one of the strongest senses related to memory. So one of the things she brought up was like, 
There's not even our olive trees that we used to have in our garden. There aren't our orange trees that every Palestinian had in their garden. And she was like, the smell of the orange blossom that we used to like remind me of home, like it's not there anymore. So this is very, um, I don't know. It's very sad to say the least. And our history is one that I have to like find through my family because it's not, it is documented you can find information about what happened in Palestine and it doesn't take too much, but it's also, we were oppressed for remembering what happened. So my grandma shared like when they were in Palestine, if they even heard you singing like Palestinian songs of the Nakba or anything, like they would arrest you. Like they don't even want you to remember or to talk about what happened. I've always thought of black media as a place where We are represented and also protected as a place where we are uplifted and empowered. And I know that that is sometimes more shown in potential than in actuality. But on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths, we get to see it in real time. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In Black Stories, Black Truths collection, You'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and belligity Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. And so, you know, when you say things like that, like I think for a lot of us who are listening and know even like a basic history of black people coming to America, you know, we see that this is the this is the methodology of colonization. It is the erasing of identity. Right. And we saw like I know a lot of people may not know, but like it wasn't that they just killed Native Americans when they came here. The children of Native Americans were then put in schools to unlearn their Native American heritage. They were put in, you know, American clothes. They were not allowed to speak their language. You know, they would be harmed if they did. And they were taught to, like you just said, unlearn their traditions and be like. And, you know, assimilated into American society. And the same thing was done with Aborigines in um, Australia. If you see the movie Rabbit Proof Fence, like they literally, and it starts with the kids and they take the children and, 
you know, they they took the children from their parents and then they start trying to marry the children off to white Australians because they're literally trying to cleanse the ethnicity. They're trying to it's genocide is what it is. And to that point, Amanda, did you know we're Cherokee? You know, our great our great grandmother. I don't know which one on our dad's side is 100 percent Cherokee. That's the Indian I got in my family. You know, y'all, you know, that's, that's. I'm like, you know, so it's like, when we talk about this, I'm like, damn, like, like, you know, we got a little bit of Irish in us too. And I'm just like, wow, we got oppression on all sides. Like, madame, you, who are you telling? Yes. Because then I throw in the Caribbean and I'm right? like, we hit it all. But I'm so sorry to interrupt you. Keep going. No, no, no. I mean, it's just, I, you know, because I really feel like the context of all of this as a point of entry of interest and of being a, a voice raiser is unique in this time. You know, we're, we literally just saw like an eruption of awareness and consciousness around black issues in the globe, around the globe, not even just America, but around the globe. And then now we come to this Palestinian issue. And I think a lot of folks, the same people who may have been supporting the Black Lives Matter movement don't see this similarity in this. And I personally feel after the studies that I've done and after the conversations that you and I had, you can't not do both. You cannot support Black Lives Matter and not support the freedom of Palestinians. You know, we're talking about the same root thing of systemic racism, colonialism and ethnic cleansing. And like and as someone like I had, you know, I was a Peace Corps volunteer and, and Eswatini shout out to my Swazi family. I miss you guys a lot. <laughs> but in Eswatini, which is a small country in southern Africa, I got to learn a lot about South African apartheid. Yes. We went to yes. the apartheid museum like. They did the same thing where they came and kicked people out of their homes, took their farms. Now people are mad, like white people in Zimbabwe are like, this is our farm where they're coming to take their farm back. And it's like, yeah, because you took it by force and it wasn't yours to take. It's crazy. It's the similarities are there. And it's not by accident. Also, let me be very clear. South Africa, when you go to the South African Apartheid Museum, which I encourage everyone to go to, they tell you. South Africans studied racism. They studied racism in Germany. They studied racism in America. And then they created, they said, okay, we're going to meld all these studies of racism and put together our plan. Do you think for one second that Israel did not study what was happening the same way and just add like South Africa was the new chapter, the newest chapter? Because what is happening is just so similar. Even if you look at the modern map of Palestine, you see like we're separated from each other. You have Gaza here, West Bank here, and you have like little, like yeah, crumbs, crumbs of what was Palestine, but they are surrounded by like um, uh, the quote unquote Israeli um, settlements, and, settlements and all of that. Well, that's what the annexing. So if you're, if you're doing research and you come across the word annexing, that's what that means. Annexing is like taking land by force and then making claims. So like, if you look at a map, it shows you how Israel has annexed Palestine over the course of the last um, 50 years. What do you say to folks who come back with the argument of, well, what about Hamas? And Hamas, for folks who don't know, is a... Um, for, Hamas has been has been labeled a terrorist group by nature of the way in which they engage in retaliation. And, you know, they have put out messaging before that says that they want to eradicate Jews. And they are now like the controlling body uh, in Palestine. But Palestine does not have a government and Palestine is not considered a state. So it's not like they're the elected um, officials in that way. Nonetheless, they have said things that are, 
that are definitely extreme um, and that a lot of people I do not necessarily support, but that is who Hamas is. So I'm just framing who Hamas is. And people, I feel, will come with the argument of, well, why are we talking about Palestine when Hamas is attacking Israel? Yeah. Um, so do you still think Black Panthers are terrorists? Like, that's that's where I'm at. Like, I don't we cannot like talk about Hamas. I think you said it so well in one of your videos, like when you're an oppressed country without a military, without a government, without anything like I like how are, there's obviously going to be some subsect of people that tries to uprise and, and fight that. And you guys, if you don't want Hamas to exist, like eradicate the oppression happening, like eradicate the um, the occupation. And I don't really like when people call the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Like, it's not a conflict because it's not 50-50. It's not like one country with a military and a government against another uh, country with a military and a government. We're not there yet. So people are literally scraping by what they have. Do I agree with, agree with what Hamas does? No, because it terrorizes a lot of innocent Palestinians. Like one missile that they throw equals however many hundreds of uh, bombs that pa Israel drops on innocent people. And it gives them an excuse. Oh, I bombed this apartment building. How many of us live in apartment buildings, get to go to sleep every night and get to wake up in the morning feeling confident that we will wake up in the morning? In Palestine, you go to, a, you go to bed in Gaza, the same way we go to bed, the same way I'm here in my apartment going to sleep, I have to think like, I might not, I might wake up in a pile of rubble. And I, and they're literally putting their kids to sleep in the same room saying, if we die, we all die together. Like how heartbreaking is that? So you, I'm not for Hamas because I think they, they take a lot of innocent people with them, but I'm not going to divert this conversation to Hamas because that's not the source of the problem. That is yeah. like a little side conversation. And it's something that people bring up to um, just to take away from what's actually happening. Um, I'm currently not talking to a very good friend of mine because of that diversion. It's like, did you put that much energy into talking about how the Israeli occupation and the lack of rights Palestinian have that you put into talking about Hamas? Because if it's not 50-50, like I don't even have time for that conversation. I know people are listening right now. They're like, oh, they are sisters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Can I really quick go back as, uh, to the point I was making about the um, annexed land in Palestine and South mm -hmm. Africa? When you look at the South African history, um, the same tactics were used with um, segregating and separating the different tribes of um, divide and conquer. So like the Fosa tribes and the other tribes were not able to communicate. They were just like, oh, here's your circle of land surrounded by a sea of South Africa and here's yours. And then, you know, so exactly divide and conquer. And the same thing has happened. So in our food, there was a really good um, little video put about Palestinian food and how currently like the trends, the food trends in Gaza and the food trends in West Bank and different areas like they're very individual to those parts because of the amount of separation that we have. We're not able to exchange recipes. Wow. So our food is now like sewing that like different identities uh, and culture within those separated areas. I've always thought of black media as a place where we are represented and also protected as a place where we are uplifted and empowered. And I know that that is sometimes more shown in potential than in actuality, but on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths, we get to see it in real time. 
Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and belligity Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. What would you say is the biggest misperception uh, or what do you feel are some of the biggest misperceptions about the Palestine-Israeli um, scenario? And I and I say that because, one, you just cleared up, because I called it a Palestine-Israeli conflict, and you're right. Like, it really is not a conflict. It is an occupation. So it's an occupation. So that's one misperception, that there's somehow this equal um, sides argument happening, but it really isn't the case. Can you name any others that people may necessarily like be being shown in the media that you want to kind of uh debunk well i have a list (laughs) naturally (laughs) so the first thing i want to talk about um the first misconception i'd like to highlight is that it's complicated like amanda i was just so happy when you said that at the opening of this um recording (laughs) like It's not complicated. People tell you it's complicated. So they're like, stay out of it. This is above you. And it's not above you. I swear every single human being is a smart, intellectual person. You can like, we have the blessing of the internet and um, endless resources at our fingertips. Yo, please read. You don't have to listen to me. I, I actually encourage you not to believe what I say today and to do your own research, because I am sure that you will do your own research and you will come to the same conclusion if you are like an unbiased person. Um, I think also just to to piggyback off of that, if you have studied even the basics of African American history in this country, if you've even just studied basic black American history and colonization, it's just a carbon copy of what you've already seen. So very quickly, you're able to put the pieces in the template back together. Cause typically when you see this scenario, it's involving some colonial aspect that has provided some power to one side that has created an other out of the other side. And that, that side that they have given power to becomes their ally slash puppet that they continue to provide with all sorts of resources to keep these other folks oppressed. And the only way that they continue to have that asset is if they can make them be above the oppressive group. So that's why there always ends up being one oppressive group or more. 
because someone has to be pow- held up as powerful in order for them to be valuable to these other greater imperialist and colonial sources. I 100% agree. Um, the other, the next misconception that I would like to bring up, misconception number two, is that here in America, as Americans, we have to understand America has already taken a stance in this situation and its stance is supporting Israel. So if you're in that uh, group of people, and I think the, the large majority of Americans are in the category of people where they're like, I don't really understand what's going on. Like, this is confusing and I kind of want out of it. Well, by staying silent, you are in it because your tax dollars go to fund the Israel apartheid. If you really are in that stance, and I don't think there's anything wrong with being like, yo, that's all the way over there. I don't really like I I don't want anything to do with that, then speak up and call your representatives and tell them, I don't want my tax dollars going there and get truly out of it. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Is that clear? Because even if you you verbally aren't in it, your money is. Yes, exactly. So let's get your money to show your stance of, I'm not really trying to be involved in this. Let's get your money removed out of, you know, especially... We spent we sent three point eight billion dollars in twenty twenty to Israel to support Israel in twenty twenty while we were in the middle of a pandemic and claiming we cannot pay people to survive. And the majority of that funding is used to support the military. So if you're sitting here saying like, yo, how is this happening? Like, that's where our money is going. Um And I just feel like as Americans, I mean, let me put myself in some, let me pretend for a second, I'm not Palestinian. I'm be like, we didn't use that money for COVID, for food support, (laughs) for uh, tuition, what are the loan reimbursement, like anything. I mean, I did, um, I did a questionnaire with like some of my friends, like, what would you like to see that money go to? Like, we want social services here in America. Like, I don't want to fund healthcare. Yeah, I want universal health care. I don't want to pay for guns to go to another country and oppress someone or or even go to funding that is like um, conflicted. I want it to be clear. The third misconception I think people have is that this is a religious war. Mm-hmm. As a Palestinian, yep. this is not a religious war to me. And this is not a religious war to my grandparents. Like <laughs> my grandma literally said, you know, like uh, she was like, uh, Jewish people when we were living in Palestine, they were regular, like they were our neighbors, they were our community members. Like there was like, no, like it was just a regular day in the life of- Well, I think that's another misperception that there weren't Jews in Palestine before this. There and there were. were plenty. Yes, there were. Like, you know, we, Palestine is the Holy uh, origins of the three monotheistic religions. So Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all there. So like naturally there were people from all these religions like living and they were living- fine together until the UN and Britain decided to get involved and switch things up and cut up the land. So for me as a Palestinian, this is not a religious, um, a religious fight. This is a fight on humanitarian um, efforts. Like people can't even get food in Gaza. Like there's just so many restrictions, like you can't imagine. And I can't even talk about all of it in one hour or whatever, how much time we have in this cat in this podcast. But I encourage you to look up what a day in the life of a Gazan person looks like in Gaza, Palestine. Like, what does it look like? How easy is it for them to get their food? Where are they getting their water from? Like these basic things that we don't think about. I encourage you to research how, how much they have to think about it every day to survive. 
And then, yeah, that number four was kind of what I had already said, was that people of all the different religions were living peacefully in Palestine prior to the Nakba, prior to, you know, this occupation. And, you know, that's what I would like to go back to. I'm not trying to, I want Jewish people to stay, like, to be in Palestine like they were. I don't want to not have any independence as a Palestinian or to have my rights revoked or to be a secondary citizen or any of the above. I want, we want equal rights and like true democracy. And this is not, this is not it. Like we have no say in anything. I really appreciate you, you know, just kind of laying all that out, particularly because, you know, there really has been for quite some time a strong fear that has been supplanted among many in being able to speak about this and do so from a, um, from the side of Palestinians, you know, and I can say like I have friends who have been blacklisted by speaking on behalf of Palestinians. And even in me just kind of learning my information about it and speaking up just on the behalf of just like I don't support injustice that I never have. You know, folks are like, oh, you better be careful. You know, they're going to come for you. And, you know, it's. I think that fear has also been a part of what has allowed this to go on and continue. I think the biggest thing, too, is also just acknowledging that, like, unfortunately, a lot of times, like, we see the oppressed find liberation and being able to oppress in the way that they were oppressed. And that is not the true state of liberation, you know? And and continuing to carry forward, um, even at the, even in the, even in the, even the greatest of intention of protecting your own people, if you are harming others, and particularly in the ways in which you have been harmed and your people have been harmed, to me, that just seems incongruous, particularly with even like the tenets of those three religions, right? Like when it comes to Islam, when it comes to Judaism, when it comes to Christianity, all of them pretty much have the same basic tenets, which is like, don't kill people. Um, treat your neighbor as you would treat yourself, you know, like don't honor thy mother, thy father, don't covet nobody's, et cetera, et cetera. And, and so when it, when it gets like <laughs> distorted into, um, a religious conversation, I think that's some, that's being used as a tool oftentimes to make people feel like they can't speak about it. Because if you're like a genuine kind of considerate person, then you know that, oh, 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 religion can't touch that. Can't touch that, but it's yeah, like but at the same time, if you wanna <laughs> if you wanna say that like religion can't touch that, Israel is like the only country in the world where you can automatically get citizenship based off of your religion. Like, and we are America, like we all I thought we were founded on separation of church and state. So what are we so what are we doing like getting involved in this? Like it it just for me, it goes against so much of the foundation of what I have been taught America is. And honestly, I wanna say like uh, big ups to my American education, which like, yeah, as much as I have like qualms with it and, you know, I have problems with it, learning I about Neta, literally, if I remember correctly, got detention for cursing out a teacher in Arabic and the oh. teacher did not, did not know what she said, but she felt it. <laughs> I don't know. I got like, they were not, they were not about me in school. They're probably still not about what I stand up for now either. But I mean, you you taught us about the Holocaust and you yeah. taught us about, you know, like the Native Americans and slavery. And like, I remember sitting here learning about these lessons like, oh, that's not going to be me. If something like that happens again, I'm going to stand up for what's right. Like, I'm going to be one of the people to do what's right. Hide innocent people in my house or whatever I got to do. Yeah. And like, this is kind of one of those moments where it's like. I'm not going to like sit and I can't be silent because America has taught me like we always stand up for what's right. So like. I'm trying to like, you know, do the American thing and be brave and say like, this is not, this is not what's right. 
I've always thought of Black media as a place where we are represented and also protected, as a place where we are uplifted and empowered. And I know that that is sometimes more shown in potential than in actuality, but on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths, we get to see it in real time. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and belligity Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning their chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ultimately, I think a lot of us just kind of can't even wrap our heads around what's going on in the context of where we are, because for so long, we've been taught about it in a historical sense. We've been taught about the Native Americans and we've been taught about apartheid shit. We've even, taught, we've even been taught about Jim Crow in the historical sense, even though that shit was just like 50 years ago and people are fully alive and well that existed within it. So we really kind of like get this distance from it, not realizing that what's happening in Palestine is exactly the same as the things that we have been taught about in history that are the colonization of people, the ethnic cleansing and the oppression of people until they are no more. Like it's the same, except we have internet now. Yes. And so right now with social media, this is the first time Palestinians can cut through the filters of like the grand media, like the news systems and everything and just show like, this is what's literally happening in my community. This is what I deal with every day. Like, you know, see what's happening to my neighbor. Like, this is my house. Like, look, other people live in it. Like, So, so Gaza uh, has Wi-Fi. We know that. Well, they turned off the power. And, um, and our like, so the power, the water, all of that is controlled by Israel. So we have it for now. Sometimes we have it. I don't know how dependable it is. I also don't live there. So I started, yeah, I was seeing that it's been down to having electricity for six hours a day at present. And Gaza is essentially an open air prison, AKA a ghetto similar to what had been created in Poland during the Holocaust. And I know a lot of people kind of only know about like Jews being sent to gas chambers, but there was a actual holding time where what had happened. So Kristallnacht, which is very similar to the Nakba, Kristallnacht happened at the beginning of the Holocaust, where basically Germans just one night came through with the SS and the Gestapo, and they basically 
went into people's homes and took them out of their homes and their stores and ruined everything. And this is also when like the Jewish stars were established and in Palestine, like they're not wearing Palestinian flags on their clothing, but people have to have pass cards, which is very similar to what was going on in the apartheid in South Africa. People had to have pass cards that specifically state where they're from and what they represent Uh, in apartheid in Africa. You were either black colored white or I think, I think mixed was an option. Um, Colored is mixed. Colored is mixed. But there was another option for like Indian. Um, They were colored. They were colored too. Yeah. Okay. So there was, I guess, only three. And I'm rusty on South Africa right now. I need to. I was there. I'll tell you. (laughs) Yeah. 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 So, because I got a bone up. But um, by the way, a great movie to watch about South African apartheid is Amandla, a revolution in four part harmony where they talk about how music played such an incredible role in the fight against apartheid. But I, um, I'm, I'm saying this example because, you know, I learned so much about the Holocaust, like in a very earnest way. And I, and I have always felt a certain closeness to my Jewish friends and the Jewish people that I work with because at such an early age, I was very much like not just taught, but Cause you know, there's one thing with teachers who teach you the facts, but I had a teacher named Miss Lewis who very much made it explicitly clear, like not just the facts of the Holocaust, but the feelings of Jews. And that's why when you read books like Anne Frank and when you read books like, you know, Number the Stars and 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 Night by Ellie Weasel, like yeah. you're seeing more than just like, okay, this happened on this day, this happened on this day. You're seeing the actual feelings of what it's like to be stripped from your land, stripped from your people, stripped from your tribe, et cetera, et cetera. So I think a lot of people, particularly Palestinians, have a very generous um compassion for like Jews and saying like we get it like well, y'all we, were we welcome them we welcome yes. Jewish people after the Holocaust to come to Palestine like we shared our homes with them and then we were removed from our homes so there was a lot of conversations I think about you know just what Palestine was to be by people that weren't necessarily all of the same mindset of what was best for, for the Jewish community. And I think that's the thing that we always end up realizing about what power is and who we vote for and who's actually in leadership. When we talk about like our quote unquote people, um, because I think there, I have, I've seen a lot of Jewish friends who are like, you know, I don't support this. This isn't respond. This isn't in alignment with our Jewish principles. This is in alignment with my morals, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think it's important to always note that there are folks who get it. Um, and also understanding that like these histories, I think complex is the wrong word. These histories are, um, these histories are recorded. And I think for black folks, I think a lot of us know that our histories have not been recorded. <laughs> so it's a, a lot of black folks feel very disconnected from how we got here. But when we're looking at these stories, we can see how we have landed in this position. And thus, I feel like we should be able to take real earnest efforts to change. So I will say, and you tell me if you agree with this, Nads, the outspokenness in this particular time in the timeline is more than it ever has been. That's my experience, but I am a little bit weary because the thing with social media, that is a double-edged sword. So I talked about the positive of it. The alternative is, the other issue is that that it's this, um, what do they call it? The algorithm. Mm -hmm. So I went on account one day and I looked at the like posts on one of the postings on one account. And then I switched to another account and looked at the same like um, postings underneath. And it was completely different. 
I had a completely different experience. So I don't know if because of the algorithm, like I'm just seeing people who are support, supporting my ideas and making yeah, that makes me absolutely. feel like people are supporting Palestine or if that's actually the case. So it's a little bit hard to, to say and I'll be like, I wish that social media would remove this algorithm and let us <laughs> experience it in the old way. But um, and then on top of the fact that, you know, now um, people who share about Palestine are also um, being shadow banned, being sh- exactly shadow banned. So it's hard to decipher through social media because it, everyone has such a different, weird experience on it. I think even beyond social media, like I just sent you, I sent you an article from the New Yorker yeah, about yeah. this guy. Um Beinart, who had been like the poster boy for, you know, in support of Israel. And he recently just like changed his mind on that and has been vocal about the fact that like he feels like Palestine, you know, his his opinion before had been very like, we don't worry about Palestine. And now he's changed his tune. And so, you know, when you see voices like that, that have been so much at the forefront fighting against and are now fighting or or even just saying that you change your mind is a version of fighting for. I think it's just that. We forget, though, when we have these conversations that, like, as we're talking, people are living the experience in real time. And it's so easy to talk about, like, well, what can we do for change and act like it needs to have some type of, like, process when really it's just like it just needs to stop. And I I think I don't know how that happens without there being, like, a genuine shift in leadership and ideals well i've been thinking about this a lot in the past few days and i think that um the couple the things that i would ask of supporters or you know people who who just don't want to be involved in the palestinian israeli conflict it's like say that like say that you don't want your money going there yeah and share about it like i have to listen i grew up like my whole life being like whispering to people on the side hey guys i'm palestinian and then people coming up to me and being like Hey, just so you know, I heard you're Palestinian. I support you. Like, I'm tired of feeling like I cannot voice that I am Palestinian. Like, I have to think about it every time. And it's not just me. Like, my siblings, my family has also, like, said this. Like, we have a emotional, mental hurdle to jump before we say it. And every time it's like, and even Amanda, when you asked me to be on the show, I said, there are some things that I have to be honest about with myself before I make this decision. Because... You don't know like what powers are against you when you say that it's, it's, it's tough, but I think like we need to normalize the conversation. So please, if you like want to support this or you want to take a neutral stance, like say that, say that, you know, publicly, like you don't want your funds going here. Let's normalize the conversation of Palestine. Like let's be able to say the word Palestine. I want to be able to say it. I swear. I've never heard it more than when I went to the protest and the feeling of like, wow, like me and my family felt when we were there, I was like, I just am like, can't believe the amount of relief I feel from just hearing people say Palestine because they never say it. It's like Israel. Oh, I ate Israeli food. Oh, I went to vacation in Israel. What is and it's like, you don't know how much that hurts us. Like we, we don't exist. Like we aren't even, and that's not Israeli food. That's Palestinian food that's been appropriated. Honey. So, and you're talking to a chef, by the way, because Neda is yeah. a trained chef and nutritionist. So she's not just saying that lightly. she's not just saying that lightheartedly i also just urge everyone to just do some research on how this recent uh surge of information has hit the airwaves and sheikh jarrah and um the al-aqsa temple and the attacks that were made on the palestinian people that launched 
uh, the retaliations that then became retaliated upon by Israel, because I think what I'm seeing is kind of like a conversation that's only starting halfway through and not starting at the beginning of how the current onslaught uh, actually, like what the catalyst was. And I, I, I really take issue when I see just misinformation, you know, that the catalyst is Hamas. And in this this scenario, that simply is just not the case. Uh, There were attacks made and then there were warnings given and then attacks made again. And then there was retaliation. And I think that it's very in, it's just very unrealistic and also just simply ridiculous to think that people who are put asunder will not eventually seek out ways to overcome. Yes. Um, honestly, as black folks in America, we, the, we, the last ones who've been like, we just going to keep taking it. <laughs> like we've seen pockets, we've seen pockets, but it's, uh, it's, it's, it's next. We're next to see another pocket of, of folks who are just like, nope, because I feel like the social media, the, the generation that is seeing what's going on in Palestine, that is seeing what's going on with police brutality, that is getting to actually with their eyes, not just hear about, but verbally and auditorily um, and visually Im- be immersed into these scenarios. That's that's affecting your, your development in a different way. So again, like Netta said, if you don't want to be in the middle of it, take your money out of the middle of it. And by the way, Neda, I think that's like a very, that's like a different approach. I think some people feel like if you're saying that, then what you're saying is I'm against. And it's like, no, that's saying I'm neutral. I put my money to things that I'm in support of. And if you take my money out of this, then I'm in neutral, I'm neutral. And so that is a way forward. I've always thought of black media as a place where we are represented and also protected as a place where we are uplifted and empowered. And I know that that is sometimes more shown in potential than in actuality, but on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths, we get to see it in real time. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. In Black Stories, Black Truths collection, You'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and creating world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account about what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. From Bobby Shmurda to The Wire, Michelle Obama to Reparations, there's no limit to the range of Black stories, Black truths. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, they are the story. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. It's NPR Noir. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, nuanced, and bliggity Black as the country we reflect. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR wherever you get podcasts. McDonald's is not new to chicken. So maybe stop questioning that chicken cred and get your hands on the McCrispy. Juicy fried chicken, buttery bun, unmatched pickle to chicken ratio. Yeah, they know what they're doing. In fact, we can honestly say they're not new to chicken. They're true to chicken. The McCrispy. Only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
the script. We have a segment called uh, The Script where we give folks some supplementary materials that they can look to and uh, get more insight into the topic that's at hand. So do you have any books, any podcasts, any movies, any Instagram folks that people should check out to help support their learning about this? Okay, so if you're an artist, like I know Amanda is, I just recently got this book. It's called um, Traditional Palestinian Costume. I've been having this book in my cart for probably six years, and it's been $700. Just recently, it came down to $100. That means people, Palestinians were not able to print books. All my Palestinian books were 400, 300, 700. Now we're starting to get access to new books. So this was now 100. I know it's expensive. Don't buy it if you don't have to, like get it from the library. But I love reading about the um, traditional designs of our Palestinian clothing connected with the different regions. It tells a really like wonderful story. Um, There's also a couple of people I do follow on Instagram. Um, Let me go through. Nina Takori. Also, If Not Now Org, which is actually a Jewish um, organization. Uh, Subhi Taha. How does, how do people spell that? S-U-B-H-I period T-A-H-A. There it is, Subhi Taha. And I think most importantly, I would say like, listen to your Palestinian friends. Like, I mean, we've been here, believe me, we have not been okay. Like all these years, um, you know, take a moment to ask us like what our perspective is. Like my grandparents, the one thing they were so excited about me speaking about this. And they just said, Nagneta, please like share the truth, like share what really happened to us. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, and make sure they're in a the space to want to mm-hmm. share that. But if they are like, take a moment to listen. Um, I would also like everyone to take a moment to listen to me count to 10 in Arabic, which I learned from Neda's mother. And let me know if I still got it. Okay, go ahead. I know you got it. Wahad, Itnen, Telete, Arba, Hamse, Site, Saba, Tamanye, Tese, Ashale. Ashara, wow. Shatra, Shatra, Mashallah. Thank you. <laughs> Let me tell you, when I was in New York and they, I would go into a shop and they would start talking and I'd be like, ah, ah, khalas. They'd be like, ah. <laughs> and then it turned into a Seth Khaled, Habibi. You get that, get that Palestinian discount, you know, exactly, maybe a little right? extra gushers or whatever. <laughs> Aslam alaikum, you know, so a couple extra gushers, hilarious. The last dose. Well, thank you so much, Netta, for for coming on and sharing. Um, And I just love that I was able to learn more about your side of the family, uh, you know, your mother's side of the family and the history and how that all ties in. And we even learned that I'm 100% Cherokee. Who knew? You know, family and lineage is a very complex, interesting thing. And um, there's a particular reason why I do not refer to you all as half brothers and sisters, because I feel like that is just like trash. Like no one does. Like, come on. Like, (laughs) it's just dumb. Like, you're my sister. This is facts and this is information. And, um, you know, our extended family is still our family, right? Yes, because yes. we are we are born together through blood. You so, know, they always see you, Amanda. Like, I'm telling you, they're like, oh, Amanda was uh, talking. On- yeah. <laughs> Shukran. <laughs> Shukran. <laughs> they're all like, like wait, to send us the um, interview when it's over. We're ready. So... <laughs> 
Yes, like we're all really, we're all real. I don't think we say it enough. Like Amanda, we are very proud of you. Like, of, you know, even before this Palestine stuff, like, you know, we're all really proud of you. You have to hear that and know that. Thank you so much, Naz. And you've always been such a, Neda is a peaceful spirit. I think at one, at one time there was fire, but now it has, it is, it is peaceful. It is a refined rage. It is refined. Well, you know, when you're in a healthy place, you can be, have a healthy temperament. <laughs> this, this, you hear that y'all? Carry that one with you. When you're in a healthy place, you can have a healthy temperament. Um, so thank you so much for joining us. And for all of you all who are listening, I hope that you, you know, really took this in and I wanted to create a safe space to have this conversation. So I hope that we did that and um, continue to create safe spaces to further the conversation on your own. So thank you, Naz, for joining us. Yes, Love no you. problem. Thank you so much. <laughs> Love ya. Love you too, Amanda. <laughs> thank you. Bye. <laughs> Shout out to my sister for joining us and really just giving us all of the information coming from the heart. And, you know, I really feel like um, she nailed it. She really nailed it. She was kind of nervous. She's kind of nervous, but she nailed it. And when I say nailed it, I just think because I really wanted to just connect you all in a human interest way to this uh to this historical and and really problematic oppression that's taking place right under our noses. And we as Americans who are listening right now, our tax dollars are funding this. And like we saw in the South African apartheid movement when it was literally like, we need to pull our money out of South Africa, like we need to have an embargo, et cetera. It feels like we, you know, are supporting the destruction of, of homes, of families, of traditions, et cetera, by continuing to be um, funding, you know, the oppression that's going on in Palestine. And again, I always feel the need to make it very clear that this is not about an attack on Jewish people. It's not about an attack on Judaism. It's attack on a political oppression of other people in the name of saying that it's okay to do because it was done to us. And I just don't think that's fair for anybody. No. And that's why, you know, when it comes to black folks, it's like, you know, we always find ourselves being like, damn, like, how do we stand up for black black rights and, and how do we stand up for black values and how do we stand up for the freedom of black folks without mirroring our oppressors? Because I feel like that ends up being just kind of uh, besides the point, which is how, you know, you see Martin Luther King approaching things, the passive method of approach. But even he at one point was finally just like, nah, we're going to have to knock it food buck. <laughs> So nonetheless, educate yourselves, um, inform yourselves. And at the end of the day, if you still feel like, you know what, I don't want to speak about this because I don't feel like I'm on a right. I, I don't feel like I want to insert myself into this conversation. At the very least, you can remove your money from the conversation by asking your senator and demanding that it be done. Thank you to Nads, uh, Netta, we call her Nads. Thank you to Netta and thank you to everybody who came into this episode listening with an open ear and an open heart and an open mind. Star Bands Audio, a, podca <clears throat> a podcast network.